Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Automated decisions, personalized customer and employee experience, and data-driven decision-making are at the core of digital transformation in the 2020s. In other words, data is eating the world and all modern business leaders must know how to use data analytics and advanced data science to power their organizations. So, how do organizations set themselves up for success in a data-driven world, that is technically and culturally? To answer this question and many more relating to data-driven innovation and entrepreneurship, I recently spoke to Felipe Flores. Felipe is a global thought leader and influencer in the field of data science and artificial intelligence. He's the founder of Data Futurology, a podcast and event company with more than 10,000 weekly listeners. He is the head of data and technology at Honeysuckle Health and the co-organizer of Data Science Melbourne, one of the largest data science meetups in the world. In this first of a two-part series of Leaders of Analytics featuring Felipe, we discuss Felipe's journey from a young backpacker to a global data science executive. What data futurology does and why Felipe started it. How to innovate with data science, the biggest trends in data science in the next one to three years, what the perfect data-driven organization looks like, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Felipe. Felipe Flores, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is so good to have you on the show. Right. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I am so excited to get to spend this time with you. It's a real honor. Thank you so much. Uh, the honor is all mine. And you and I are still buzzing from a conference that you and your team put on last week, the first in-person conference that we've been to for years, but also the first such event that Data Futurology has organized. So we're going to get to that in a minute. We have a lot to cover today, including your story, your background, what Data Futurology is, and also what you do in your day-to-day, which you are very much an applied practitioner still. And we want to hear all about that and what you do at Honeysuckle Health. Amazing. So Felipe, I just alluded to it. We are still buzzing from this in-person event that you organized with your team last week. And we had there some fantastic speakers from all around the world, top leaders in AI. You have gotten to that point now, but you have come from a completely different point. Could you tell us a bit about your story through uh, this journey of becoming uh, ultimately a big league conference organizer in Australia from where you started in the copper mines of the Atacama Desert? Yeah. Uh, Over to you. Mate, thank you. Thank you so much. So I'm originally from, from Chile, from South America. I grew up, as you said, in the in the north part of Chile. I grew up in the driest desert in the world. So over there it would rain once every seven years. When it did rain, we'd get about one centimeter worth of rain. And uh, the town that I lived in was right next to one of the largest copper mines in the world. And we were about 5Ks from the mine. So close that when they did the blasting at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m., you could feel the earth moving as a result of the blast. 
And that's, that's where I grew up. I started going to uni in Chile. And then I was about 19 when I came to Australia as a backpacker. I thought I was going to be here for like six weeks. And that was like 20 years ago. So it's been like the longest six weeks of my life. <laughs> I loved it, decided to stay. And then to, I didn't, when I got to Australia, I didn't speak any English. And when I decided to stay, I had to figure it out. And that meant doing every job under the sun. The first job that I got, I was a, a door knocker selling home phone and internet services for one of the major providers in Australia. And they gave me a script, which so I had to knock on 120 doors a day. And I would like bring out my little piece of paper and be like, hello, how are you? And just like the worst accent ever. So as you can expect, I made zero sales. But what I did find was an amazing and super welcoming country. So I was couch surfing with, with our friends and colleagues or, or like colleagues who became friends. I was staying at their places. And through the door knocking work, I was getting invited to lunches and barbecues and people like have some morning tea, afternoon tea. That was like really, really nice and got to travel around Queensland for that job. And then did kind of like heaps of heaps of odd jobs. I was an AV technician and etc. And eventually I got a job uh, more in IT where I started in a small company, more as like their web developer. But in my first couple of days, in the first week that I was there, I could see that they had a database that crashed about five times a day and I could hear the company was like 12 or 15 people and I could hear people cursing everywhere going, oh, this, you know, terrible piece of whatever. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's failing a lot. So I went to the library like <laughs> back, back in the day and I was doing some research and essentially found you could build a database on Microsoft Access, especially for a company of that size. And I got this book that it was like, learn Access one hour a day over 30 days or something like that. And um, so I started going through this and I was like, I can do this. Then I went to the owner of the company and I said, oh, you know, you got this terrible crappy database that, that crashes all the time. I can build you a better one. He goes, what do you know? You're a kid. He's like, I paid 50 grand to this software development company to be, build me this one and it crashes all the time. You think you can do better? And I was like, well, try me. Like, let's find out. So I was able to convince him. I built a database and then the, the reporting and then the analytics. And then the analytics allowed the, the small company to start making better decisions. So the company sold other businesses like restaurants and hairdressers and things like that. They were the broker for those. And so we started identifying who had better success with different types of businesses when they were selling or who could target certain demographics, particularly people of different countries of origin. And then through that, we started shrinking the time that it took to make a sale. It started getting better conversion rates. The sales guys were really happy and, and it started to snowball. So from that point on, I was like, shit, this data stuff is pretty good, pretty good. And through that, I started you know, going to uni. So I did computer systems engineering and business. So I did a, a dual degree, uh, which I found super beneficial to have the both sides. And then, so I kept working in data throughout my degree. And then when I was finishing my degree, I did a thesis. And this was kind of like my first foray into data science. I was part of a research project where we were detecting the fatigue levels of truck drivers in mines. So it was a research project sponsored by the mining industry. And the way we did this was using EEG. There were three of us in the team and there was an electrical engineer, very senior, and he created the sensors that went on inside of the forehead. And there were new sensors because one of the constraints was that it, the whole thing had to fit within a baseball cap. So there was uh, three sensors at the front and then there was one close to the ear, behind the ear, that was uh, the ground zero for comparison. And he made all the, the amplifiers and all the electrical engineering side and then gave me the signal. And then I designed the onboard computer that had to be on a flexible PCB to go around the, the inside of the hat. And then I had to find a way to solve the problem from going as an input, having an EEG wave, and as an output, having a number from one to five where when people went from three to four, they couldn't drive anymore. And luckily we were able to get 
thousands of hours of label data from sleep experts around the world, both the EEG and video footage. And they had told us when people were at different levels. And then that's how I discovered machine learning and ended up building a model to do that. And this was like early 2000s. So the time was completely different compared to what you can do now. But the onboard computer ended up Right, uh, ended up running a, a linear regression like crazy and with obviously a virtual transformation ahead of time to then be able to predict the level. But then a bunch of compressed data was sent to a server where we had a neural net that was making the kind of like the final prediction and then being fed back to the hat and the cabin and also the organization. So when people got to that level three, when they went from level three to level four, there was alarms in the cabin and that sort of meant that people had to go home, which was quite seen as quite invasive. So we had cases of really interesting change management of people taking off their hats and running them over with these like 500 ton trucks. Yeah. And just saying like, oh, you can't control me or whatever. But it was interesting that at the time, early 2000s, there was a mine, a very small mine in Chile that had the first autonomous trucks. And they were having teething issues like that these trucks, they were a bit smaller back there, but they were about 200 tons. And these trucks were had been programmed essentially so well that they were following the exact same path on these dirt roads that the trucks go on. And every truck was following exactly the same path with these 200 tons. So the truck started sinking into the dirt because essentially this had never been a problem before that when humans drive, you go a little bit further to the left one side, a little bit further to the right the next side. So it's it was staying even for longer. So we were having kind of like the change management and adoption challenges of this new technology when, when humans drove the trucks. Uh, and we were able to say, well, look at this little mine that's solving the autonomous trucks and in having and proving the, the teething issues. So as part of the change management, obviously that I wasn't intimately involved. I was kind of like a researcher on the team, but I could see that the decision was made to people to say, wear the hat or you might be automated. And you know, like change management and adoption in AI is still a problem that we're, that we're facing today and it will continue to, to be an area of us to focus on because that's how we get the, the impact of our work. So yeah, that's a little bit about how I got here, how I started in data, started in AI, and it's almost 20 years later, and I, I love it. I love it. Yeah, well, it sounds like that's actually only half the story, because I'm sort of you're 10 years into your 20 years there. But a couple of things I picked up on there was, I really liked that story of the trucks driving into the same track and actually digging a hole for themselves, because that's really, in essence, that is what this whole discussion around AI ethics is about. And if you swap trucks for people, you're, you're actually keeping people in the same track, and you got to be really cognizant of that when you build models and perpetuate the past into the future that uh, you are potentially perpetuating uh, either fairness or unfairness uh, in that. Really good story. And Felipe, I'm, I'm sort of thinking throughout all this, there is some university uh, mixed into it, but you're learning English as you go. Your English, I haven't spotted any errors right now. Of course, I, I'm also uh, someone with a foreign accent, but uh, <laughs> I'm not an English teacher, but... Uh, We're going to stick together, mate. There's no thick Spanish accent or Latino accent anymore. You're legible. All of that you're doing at the same time and you're going to library and learning and and so on. There's a lot of self-taught knowledge throughout this whole process. What do you think is so unique about you here? Your career is this entrepreneurial endeavors, technical work, computer design and, and so on. And you will hear in a bit that you've also done lots of senior leadership roles. It, it's rare to find someone who can straddle that full spectrum like that. What do you think is, in a nutshell, what you do that you do so well and that you're better at than most? Yeah, thanks, mate. That is, uh, well, first of all, that's very, very kind. And that's a, yeah, that's a tough question. So yeah, as you mentioned, like uh, during my period of almost like growing up professionally in, in the analytics world, I spent 12 years in consulting. And the last five of those, I had my own consulting business where in the past, kind of like in the first seven, I spent some time as a freelancer and then working for for large corporates and small ones too. But then at the last five, I had my own consulting company and grew it and then eventually sold my part. From there, I went to to ANZ and I was the first head of data science at 
at the bank, spent about five years in finance all up between ANZ and Liberty Financial, another company, and and then moved on to onto healthcare, which now I work at, at Honeysuckle Health, which is uh, for the last couple of years. So that's a bit of a of an overview. And in terms of I can tell you the things that I that I enjoy and then some things around my personality that I guess predispose me to to different things. I really enjoy helping people building teams and helping people improve and rise in this space. One of the things that I think is particularly important in that is what sometimes is referred as soft skills. So I've also heard them referred as power skills, which I like a lot more. And that I think that in the in the data science and AI space, we have so many ways to acquire technical knowledge. And it's definitely a space that's moving super, super quickly. Uh, but we have so many options and ways to acquire technical knowledge, the, the programming, the cloud skills, new platforms, like uh, understand the algorithms and implementations and even use cases. Like there's so much content there available online. And then when we think about the leadership side of analytics and data science, it seems to me very sparse in comparison. And I think that that's the area where you can make a huge difference in your career as a person, as an individual, but also you can have a huge impact in your work and for the organizations that, you, that you're involved in. And it's a value multiplier for the technology, this wonderful technology that we have access to. So I saw that as an area of gap and definitely decided to stay as technical as I can and double down on these like power skills. And then I, I'm a person that's quite impatient by nature. And like my, my teens will tell you that as probably like the first thing that has made me, helped me find ways of shrinking the time to value. And to the point that like in my teens, for example, we implement this approach that when we start a new project, before we look at any data or anything like that, we... Uh, sit with the stakeholders and we get them to draw out by hand the charts that they expect to see. And essentially through that process, we want to uncover any hypotheses that they have, their expectations of how the world works. And then we have a subset, which literally it usually ends up being three to five or two to five charts that then we draw by hand and we explore and discuss, and then we go and replicate those in the data, and then we discuss where the differences are. So to say, these are the ways that you thought it was totally right, and then these are the ways where it's a little bit different. So let's explore that. And taking an approach like that, it means that you're delivering value in day one. If you have if you have the, the data and a bit of the infrastructure, you can meet with them in the morning and to get the hand-drawn charts, and then you meet with them in the afternoon when you have you know, three or two to five charts that are ready to go. So then that allows you to hone in into what's relevant for the stakeholder, what's important for the organization, and from the get-go answer new or bring in new insights, and which in this case are the differences between the expectation and reality. And then you start following that path. So yeah, I think I think those are those are some of the things that that I focus on and that I, that I want our industry and our community uh, to leverage more and more over time. Wonderful. I love that. I think there's a natural tendency for people in, in this line of work to just take problems uh, at face value and then go and try and solve them because we're natural problem solvers. But that doesn't always mean that you've got the exact problem uh, phrase right. Then you're just basically wasting your time. Uh, I love that. And I'm going to steal that and bring that back uh, to my own organization. I'll uh, look forward to seeing uh, people's drawing skills as well improve in the process. Now, Felipe, during this period, you decide to start Data Futurology. Can you tell us what that is and why you started it? Right. I love it. Thank you so much. So Data Futurology was essentially born out of this almost like gap in the market and and working with so many uh, data scientists and uh, analytics practitioners over, over the years and seeing that people wanted more from their careers, wanted to increase their impact and wanted to have more impact in, and create more value in organizations. I could see that a lot of the gap 
was in the soft skills and power skills that we were talking about before. In 2018, I was going to have a bit of a bit of a break. My wife and I were going to go. We got married at the start of 2018, and we were going to go on a long honeymoon. And I remember saying to my wife something like, which obviously went down terribly, but I said something like, oh, you know, we're going to have six months off. You know, I've never had a break this long. She she had, uh, but I said, I've never had a break this long. What am I going to do? I'm going to get so bored. She was like, what the hell? (laughs) What do you mean? But being nice about it, she she sort of said, well, yeah, like understands that I might have needed a project. And, And she said, well, you love, you love listening to podcasts so much. Why don't you do one yourself? And I was like, shit. Maybe I should. Like I hadn't really, the idea hadn't crossed my mind before that. And then I started thinking, well, what would I do? What am I passionate about? And what is the the change that I think needs to happen in the industry? And based on on the conversations that I've had with professionals before, like what what areas I felt like I, I could help them and things. And that's how Data Futurology was born with the initial aim. The initial aim was to help analysts and data scientists get to C-level executives. That was how why I distilled it. Like, what are the skills, the mindset, the approaches, the strategies that people need to have to develop their career to get to a C-level executive? And that doesn't necessarily have to be a chief data officer or a chief data analytics officer. Because I think that the, the more people that come up in our industry with the power skills, they'll be able to move laterally within a C-level executive. So uh, we've already seen people that were data scientists or data analysts by, by background, that they become chief marketing officers, chief financial officers, chief operating officers, and, and, and often like CEOs as well. So I think that there's a whole world that is available for people that have our background, like the, the, the quant background, and that, that add these power skills and then are able to develop into professionals that can definitely lead organizations and and business lines. And I really want to encourage the industry to, to think more broadly like that. And that was the initial intent over behind that of Futurology, which sticks stays to, to today, so four years in and it's core to, to what we're trying to do. And during the journey, we've learned from the audience that there's a lot of people that are non-technical and that they see the value and power of AI and that they want to be really good stakeholders and that they want to help bring this this value to reality we've increased our approach in our community and we've become a bit more inclusive to say how can we help people from that background like non-technical people to better work with it with ai and ai teams and help create the impact that is available from this technology and those are kind of like the two major markets that we serve through the community and it's been great. And as you said, like before, we've spent about four years doing virtual events and we just had our first in-person event in Melbourne. And I was really happy with it that we had a few hundred people there and I was trying to talk to as many people as I could, trying to get their feedback. And overall, the audience seemed to be really happy with it. The speakers did really well. There were excellent speakers and covered really interesting topics and approaches. We had really good sponsors as well. And I couldn't have been happier with the event. Uh, one of the things that was really important for me was the, the quality of the catering <laughs> to have like good food and enough food. <laughs> like nobody wants to go to these conferences where they bring out like three muffins for 300 people. And so like the fact that there was good, good amount on and good quality food on that side too. Uh, was great. So yeah, super happy with how Data Futurology is, is going so far. And when I first started it, I, I remember thinking, well, at the very beginning, I was like, I'll do this while we're in our honeymoon. So I'll do this for six months and then call it. And then when we got back to Australia, oh, during those six months, we started getting sponsors at about month three. And that obviously helped. And then when we got back to Australia, there was like two weeks that I didn't release any episodes. And then I started getting messages and emails from people saying, hey, when's the next episode coming back? And I was like, shit, now I'm stuck. Um, like, I'll have to go back and, and keep doing that. And at that point, I was like, well, maybe this is something that is valued or, or needed in, in the community. And if it is, then I'm happy to do it. Like, I don't know, 10 years was the, the time frame that I was thinking. And I'm happy to continue to give it a go as long as people find value in it. And then... Yeah, we'll see, kind of like we'll see what happens. And we've had 
tough times, particularly during COVID, where we lost all our sponsors and the company, like it's essentially a company because we charge sponsors, but it's been, the team always tells me that I should have incorporated as a not-for-profit because there's always been like zero dollars left at the end of every year. And then like during COVID, we lost all our sponsors. And I was like, well, if this is the time to like scale it back heaps, I was like, I could keep doing a podcast or an interview maybe once a month with the team. We can do a lot more. But if, it, if it's time to like really bring it down, then so be it. But lucky enough, we were able to get sponsors again and then started sort of growing over 2021. And then that brought us to our first big in-person event at the start of 2022. And we're looking forward to doing a couple more this year. So we'll be in Sydney in August and then we're planning an MLOps event in about November. And then we'll continue to do the podcast and the videos. And from there, we'll see. Like as long as people enjoy it and we know what, what people are interested in, we'll keep covering that. Brilliant. And I can really see how you got the ultimate customer feedback there, which is when you disappear, people start asking about you and where are you? So uh, that couldn't be any better. The event was a really good event. It wasn't just the food. We had brilliant speakers from around the world. And Knock on wood, Felipe, uh, you and I, we still don't have any COVID symptoms. Uh, so that's also yeah, a, right? a, good, a good outcome. <laughs> Hopefully it, it, it remains like that. Do you have a long-term vision for what data futurology will turn into? That's a good question. I think that basically, I guess in summary, whatever the community needs and is, and is not receiving, we want to be able to provide that. So we definitely started on these like power skills and soft skills and helping people rise in their careers and have have ex executive skills that are hard to uh, even find places on on how and where you acquire it, especially when you combine that with with AI. And I think in in general, more broadly, what the the industry and the community needs and they they feel like they're underserved. That's that's what we want to bring for them. So that can be I don't know books or use cases. If it's conferences, if it's podcasts, if it's videos, I'm flexible from that perspective, and and I'm I'm keen to help people in their journey and to to help them add value where they are and kind of like be better at the things that they want to do. So if I can help a little bit on that, great. And now we have a, a wonderful team that obviously they worked incredibly hard to put this conference together. And I was telling everyone at the conference, I was like, I'm terrible at this stuff. Like I, I contributed embarrassingly little to all the, the, the amazing event that happened and it was all the team. So now that there's, that there's this engine that can help make things happen for the community. I'm keen for us to continue to find the, the areas that the community wants and needs and then be able to provide those through this engine. Yeah, you and the team do provide so much value to the global data analytics community and you really can feel that ethos of it's not about profit center or making money. You're sort of a very giving organization. So uh, I and everyone else who interacts with you really appreciate that. And it's also hard to predict what the needs are of, of the future, of course. So who knows, maybe in 10 years, you can make us all a chief data and analytics officers in the metaverse or something like that. You know, we don't know what's uh, going to happen there. I'll take it. That'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> yeah, let's build that. But Felipe, we want to learn from you about uh, all the wealth of knowledge that you've created on your journey, your personal journey, but also... You have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people who have deep knowledge in this space. You are really a global thought leader, a practitioner, and a facilitator of all this data science knowledge for all levels of experience in different types of organizations and industries. So I think of you almost as a walking encyclopedia when it comes to understanding what, what really takes to succeed with data. Could you Perhaps distill that down into what do you think are the biggest trends in data science that we all need to watch out for and learn about and learn how to take advantage of in the next, say, one to three years? Amazing. Thank you. Well, mate, thank you so much. That is a very, very kind, very kind of you. So thank you. There's a lot, obviously, that, that's happening in our industry and a lot that is required of us and i think that the the expectations on analytics professionals is is always kind of like increasing and so i think that number one i would say understand your strengths what you're good at in what the landscape requires because the landscape requires such diverse skills 
that obviously they're, they're not going to be in, in one person. So if you can understand what part of that diverse skill set, what part you are good at and passionate about, then double down on those in terms of your own skills and understand what other supporting infrastructure you need in order to maximize the impact that we can get from these teams and this technology. So in some cases, I've seen organizations that have an analytics leader, which could be a GM or a C or a C-level exec, sometimes higher. Sometimes the, the leader is very, very technical by nature. And as a result, they're, they're almost like their first level of people that report to them is people that are great at, at account management, at sales, at project management, and things like that. So to say that if the leader is, is very technical and they, they understand the analytics and the ML, then they might be weaker on some of these other areas that are important for an organization to create the change and get value from the organization, then do that. And the mirror image of that is organizations that are being where the analytics capability is led by leaders that are not technical, that they're business people, that they can manage the complex relationships in organizations and they can open the right doors at the right time so the impact is realized. They often have people that are quite technical reporting to them as a result. So there's different models that are um, that can be implemented to maximize success in this space. And, and, and you'll see like heaps of different models in different places. And, and there's no kind of like there's no one model. And that's because the model needs to be built based on the on the strengths and the weaknesses of the leaders and the people that are there. So that's a, a great place to start. I think additionally, the area of adoption is is something that we continue to find a challenge uh, as a challenge in, in our industry that we want to be creating a lot of impact in our organizations. The expectation from business continues to increase and they want to see more and more uh, and better ret- return on investment, but also a greater likelihood of probability from our projects and our deliverables that we know that the overwhelming majority of AI projects and products fail. So from a business perspective, that's quite a risky investment. They want something more predictable, which is obviously part of our game. So focusing on on the bookends of, of projects and products and particularly, and sorry, but I mean when I say bookends, I mean the start is around, as, as you were saying before, you're not like understanding the business, understanding the problem, understanding context, the domain knowledge, and getting deeper, deep, deeper into that. And I think that's the specialization on domain knowledge is something that I'm seeing more and more of happening in data science as we continue to mature, that people are, are having domain knowledge and data science knowledge in the one brain, which makes them exponentially more and more valuable in organizations. And then at the other end of this sort of bookend, yeah, it's called is the last mile, as it's sometimes called, which is both the delivery of, of the AI product or service to the user of it, so the, which sometimes it can be in the MLOps space, but the delivery of that analytical model or insight, and then the adoption and the usage of it, i.e. people need to change practices, need to change the way that they work in order to get value from that. And that's a very sort of human element where you need to understand the, the psychology and the mindset of people that need to make this change. That's an area where you know, change managers and relationship managers are having a great welcoming to our industry when they come with those skills. And then if they learn AI, we can make them part of our of our ecosystem to help us improve those practices. And I have to tell you, one of the really good stories, like interesting stories that we've had in the podcast, and obviously we've we heard heaps, but in this space, I remember speaking with the people at Woodside that they have natural gas plants and they did an IoT project and they had about 20,000 sensors feeding data into, into the cloud and then they did some optimization and then they wanted to feed the recommendations to the operators of the plants to tell them how to improve the use of the plant. So essentially how to get more out of the plant. And the way that they did it was excellent. So they took their time and they leveraged human curiosity. So in the first year, the operators were getting a message to say it was personalized and it was comparing them versus them. So only comparing you to you. So it said, hi, Jonas, two weeks ago, you were doing the same shift. You were operating the plant at 2% 
higher efficiency. Would you like to know what you did? And then getting that curiosity and then people had to opt in to say, yes, I would love to know what I did two weeks ago or a month ago. And they did that for a long time and people got used to opting in. Then in the second year they did, hi, Jonas, people that have done this shift, and it was always anonymous, people that have done this shift were able to get 3% higher effectiveness from the plant. Would you like to know what they did? And then you opt in and you go, yes, definitely. And then once people, enough people opted in and they were comfortable, then they open it up to say, hey, here's, here's how you can run this plant much better now. And that was kind of like year three horizon. And I think taking that mindset of taking time to implement the change, it obviously would have started slower than, than people would ideally want. But the buy-in that you get from the, the workforce that needs to change from these technologies, you can increase the buy-in drastically if you take a, a human approach and you leverage the, the psychology and in this case, the curiosity on yeah, giving people the same message enough times that they can't help but want to know how to increase that, that adoption. So I think skills like that are going to be continually important in our, in our space. And then besides that, the other specialization that, that we've seen is uh, on the technical front. So the mixture of engineering and, and data science and the engineering could be data engineering or cloud engineering, but people that become more and more technical, they can help us build the platforms and the infrastructure that we need to create and deliver these models at scale in a, in a repeatable way that's, that's improving over time. That it will continue to be a really hot area. Um, so those are some of the, the ones that I, that I see that are super valuable now and into the future. There's so much in that comment, Felipe, there's really a call out to everyone that's listening to this show that you cannot just be technical. You need to have the depth and breadth around technical and, and soft skills. Again, comes up. I've said on this show many times that this is, to me, it's one of the hardest fields of work to be in at the moment because you need to have deep technical knowledge typically, but you also need to be a marketing or a salesperson internally. You need to teach your stakeholders something that they don't know. You need to forge a path. You need to push your agenda upwards in an, in an organization where they might not have had someone like you being a data science expert or working in the data space at that level before. It's really hard and it requires you to outperform, but it also requires you to get help from the organization, C-level, and especially your CEO if you can. That is a, a huge game changer if you can get them on board and make them help you along the journey. Totally agree. And I, and I think that's where one of the areas that where the fact that we are a, a new specialization or a newish area for businesses, I think that that's, that's where it hurts us a little bit, that a lot of businesses have established patterns on how other areas deliver value to the organization, be it other areas being IT or HR or marketing that they have kind of like these supporting structures and engagement patterns of those areas with the rest of the business. And sometimes that's a business partner, an engagement manager, a project manager, whatever it may be. There's a lot of that supporting infrastructure that typically doesn't exist in analytics teams today, that the majority of time uh, we're focusing on what would be the delivery teams, but without the enough connections to the rest of the organization to to help the information flow and use the time of the specialist in, in the most impactful way and i think that that's one of the lessons that we're that we're learning at the moment as a, as an industry as well yeah i often compare where we are now to where it was probably sort of early 90s where the IT professionals were the ones that were stuck in the proverbial basement, the, the nerds, and those nerds got pulled out and elevated to CIOs when we started having PCs on mass in businesses, but also people started having it at home. The other way of saying is that actually it takes that senior leadership, it takes for them to really interact and understand the new technology that you bring in for the adoption to happen there. So, you know, when we saw that personal computing push come in, in in the 90s, all of a sudden that space got elevated. When everyone started using internet and, and everyone became internet native, all of a sudden we saw that explosion and people who'd grown up being either computer literate or internet literate, if I may call it that, when they end up in senior executive roles, then it really takes off, picks up pace. The only exceptions I can think of, this is my analogy, so it's not proven there, Felipe, but you can probably see uh, where I'm going with it. You can also have someone who's very young, like a Mark Zuckerberg, who, who is the CEO of something that, that then pushes up some of these companies, uh, elevates them much quicker than it would have been otherwise. 
with a 50-year-old CEO. So we're in the space uh, in the data and analytics world where we have a big selling job still to do to make the top echelon of your organization really, really, they might appreciate what we do, but they don't nearly understand exactly what it is and the, the technical difficulty of it and how it works. But when we get to that, things will really take off. So what is it that you can do today to make that happen quicker in your organization? That is our job, it's a big one. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. Okay, so there are the big trends that you see there. You had an example there of Woodside Petroleum. Do you have any other great examples from uh, all your years of podcasting of uh, where someone's really nailed this embedding of data-driven decision-making in organizations that you would like to highlight? Yeah, that's a great question. So definitely, I love the Woodside example from a, from a human perspective. There's been ones that have sort of knocked it out of the park from a business perspective. And um, one of the ones that comes to mind was from F1, that they focused on what they call fanalytics. So it's analytics for the fans and being able to, to do a lot of personalization on the communications and the merchandise, the offers for, for the fans, and they were able to grow the community. I think it was something like 4X, the community, in a very short period of time as a result of applying the, the lessons from analytics being sort of customer obsessed and that those areas I always love. And something else that I love is we've had people that have reduced the, the invisible barrier to value. And what I mean by that is that sometimes as professionals, we are perfectionists and we want to build something that's excellent from an engineering perspective, that is the best that we can do, the gold-plated version, kind of before it starts adding value and we put that pressure on ourselves and it's something that we can reduce sometimes significantly and lowering those barriers makes it a lot easier to get value, get impact, get started and to win support in the organization. We've had cases where people were like almost doubling their sales through personalized offers through email, email marketing, right? And you go like, all right, fine, email marketing, like, might be seen as like run of the mill. And then in this case, the algorithm, you know, wasn't productionized from an MLOps perspective. It was something that was running on a laptop, <laughs> on a desktop, where the data was being read from the warehouse and then written back from the warehouse. And through the warehouse, then the marketing system picked it up from there to, to do the personalized emails. So in terms of maturity, technical maturity, it could be seen as like quite low in the technical maturity space when you when you think about an MLOps lifecycle. But in terms of the value and the impact that it was getting, it was knocking it out of the park. So things like that, I love where, where we are kind to ourselves and we focus on starting with what we can and improving from there instead of shooting from the stars for the stars where uh, it just creates that extra pressure on us and it takes a little longer to get to that value. So anything that brings value earlier in the piece, I definitely love. And, um, and the last one that I'll quickly mention because it was just uh, like blew my mind is we had the, the CTO from NASA, from the Jet Propulsion Lab in NASA, from JPL, this guy called Chris Matman. And he was telling us how they built a deep learning model for the Mars rover and that it had to do online learning because obviously the data transfers back to Earth were so, had such low bandwidth. So they were so limited that the algorithm had to be learning on the fly. When you compare that to, I guess, the, the barriers that we have for value in Earth, <laughs> we can get away with like offline learning and, and batching things. And in their case, they were going the full shebang. So in production, in a Mars, in a different planet, in a vehicle, online learning, self-improving. I was like standing ovation. Like I was like, that's that's amazing. <laughs> that is literally from a different planet, that use case. Okay, Felipe. So here's a fun question, but it's a hard question. If we package all this up and put it into one place in one organization, 
what would it look like? So really the question is, if you were to design the perfect data-driven organization, what would it look like and why? Oh, great, great, great question. One, one thing which we were, um, we were discussing it before we started recording, but one, one of the key pieces is the, the data as, a, as an input. And obviously, every organization is going to be doing data collection and usually in the operational systems. Something that's, that's key that I've seen turn around the, the quality of data that feeds the, the algorithms and the AI that organizations have is by having the area that's responsible for entering the information, so for capturing the information, have that area also responsible for the quality of the information, which is like, obviously, like that's easily said, but then it's kind of like, how do you do it? And one of the ways that, that I've seen it work really well is to, for the analyst, almost to infiltrate that that division, <laughs> that, that business line and use the data that's collected within there to have better business results for that area. So for that business line and get the leaders hooked on the data for their decision-making and you have to start with the areas that have higher quality and then expand to the ones that have lower quality, highlighting the fact that there's lower quality, but that, that things can be done better. And examples of that is things like uh, call centers or, or using forms that people might get where you want to be working with the business and getting them to align. The way to, to get started is find the KPIs that the executives for those businesses are responsible for, and then come up with analytical projects or AI projects that can support those KPIs directly and that they use the data from that area. Because for them, for the executive to get the result that they want, they need to have uh, obviously your help, but the additionally better quality data in that space. So it'll be a direct mandate within the, the organizational structure that has the power to change that as a double down additional benefit. You're going to get um, better quality data for all of your endeavors that depend on data from that perspective. So that's something that I think is key. There's a lot of the, the technical components of having good data engineering, good data science, good analytics, being able to apply things at the right time. One of the shortcuts that I really like when you're doing a data science project or product is to go through stages of maturity, of analytical maturity that sometimes get used at an organization level, apply those to your project. So starting with by looking at the, the information that has at the historical information and say, this is what happened. Then you say like, this is why it happened. So a bit of diagnostic then the next stage of maturity is the predictive. This is what's likely to happen. And then the last stage, the prescriptive, is the recommendation. So it's kind of like, what do I do now as a result of this? And sometimes the, the machine can close that gap. Sometimes it's the human that needs to close that gap. And that's where I think as, as analytics professionals, we need to lean into it and say, you know, like the result of this experiment, this is good. It means that we should scale and getting the, the organization to be comfortable to take that leap is, is often like the, the, the responsibility of, of the analyst because they, if it say if it's one of the first experiments that they've seen, they might not know what good or bad is and what what is a good enough signal to back. And you got to be there providing that that input. So, I think uh, doing that obviously very helpful. Helping on the adoption side, as we spoke about before, and then if you can do that at an industry level, so if you can provide analytical or AI services to to an industry in kind of like a utility type model, I think is also really, really good because then as an organization, you'd be able to learn from many more examples. You get to help multiple organizations become data-driven in their in their decision making. But on the flip side, you're not only keeping the learnings to yourself and multiple multiple people can benefit from it. So I think um, yeah, some of some of the ones that, that come to mind straight away. So many good points in there, Felipe, and I can definitely subscribe to the getting your stakeholders involved in data quality. As the data head of data science in a legal firm, a lot of our data is collected by frontline in, in a very contextual way. This is the challenge that we face every day is how do we capture the right building materials and then service it up to the frontline so that they can see what the data is used for and, and what it's about. Yeah, and I think that's the key, right? That the data is captured in a contextual way for a particular purpose so that through analytics, you're expanding the purpose of where, of why that data is captured and hopefully increasing the quality as a result. 
The analogy I use for my stakeholders in the business there, I say the data science team, we, uh, we bake the bread. IT, they mill the flour when they put it in the data warehouse, but the people actually planting the seeds and harvesting the grain, that is the frontline staff. You need to make sure you, you fertilize that data and, and uh, make sure that it has the right quality, no weeds in there, no insects, no bugs. So, Felipe, we're almost at the end of this episode. There's so much more we could cover. Maybe we could do a part two if you're up for it. Uh, definitely, mate. I would love to do a part two. This has been excellent. Okay, we will do that. Now, one question I will ask today that I won't ask next time in the part two is for you to pay it forward. So that's something we always do here on Leaders of Analytics. So, Felipe, who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Right. Great, great, great. So, so many people. And I know that you've had like amazing, amazing people in your show from the get-go. So I'm super, super impressed by that, which obviously it gives people less options to suggest because you've been getting such high quality guests. So there's, there's a few that I love. Um, I'll give you one from industry and then one that's more of a consultant you can pick. So one from industry is a guy, his name is Dr. Jacek Kowalski. He's the chief data scientist at Australian Unity. I find him amazing, fascinating. He has a wealth of experience in heaps of different industries, different countries, and he's pragmatic and his teams and him are able to create really high quality analytics and AI and have had amazing impact and discuss with them optimization of workforce across Australia with constraints like time windows and, and travel times and how they do that. Uh, in, in all near real times, so that's that's amazing. And then more from a consulting area, there is Dr. Eugene Dubosarski, that he is a bit of a legend in, at least at a minimum, in Australian AI and somebody that I always learn whenever I speak with him and is yeah, kind of like a force of the industry. So he does obviously the consulting and training, but also he has a few businesses on the side that they're all very AI and analytics driven. And they're all always interesting to explore the applications and use cases that they're exploring. Felipe, brilliant recommendations. I will definitely be reaching out to Yatsig and Eugene. And last but not least, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Right. Thank you so much. So datafuturology.com is where we host everything. So all the, the podcasts that we've done, the virtual events, public events, it's all there. And do also uh, look me up on, on LinkedIn and connect with me there. That would be excellent as well. So thank you so much. Brilliant. It is not goodbye. It is see you soon. We will make sure we do part two to this one, uh, Felipe. So until then, keep doing what you're doing. And thanks for being part of the show today. Mate, a true honor to be on your show. Thank you so much for the opportunity and really looking forward to part two. Thanks so much, mate.